Hi, Mom, and welcome to the second installment of the Seven Seasonal Spiels. I'm fairly certain that is the title we landed on. Or, Merry Making Memoirs. Which sort of describes our next story. Kind of? Okay, so settle in for this slightly longer tale of navigating family relationships, fun, and holiday dinners. This story is titled Year's End by Jhumpa Lahiri, published in The New Yorker on December 16th, 2007. Enjoy! I did not attend my father's wedding. I did not even know there had been a wedding until my father called early one Sunday during my final year at Swarthmore. I was roused from sleep by a pounding on my door, followed by the voice of one of my hallmates saying my last name. I knew before answering that it was my father. There was no one else who would have called me before nine. My father had always been an early riser, believing that the hours between five and seven were the most profitable part of the day. He would use that time to read the newspaper and then go for a walk. A long marine drive when we lived in Bombay and on the quiet roads of our town of the North Shore of Massachusetts, where we moved when I was 16 after my mother got sick. As much as he used to encourage my mother and me to join him, I knew he preferred being alone. Things were different now, of course. Those solitary hours he'd once savored had become a prison for him, a commonplace. I knew that he no longer bothered to go for walks and that since my mother's death, he hardly slept at all. I had not spoken to my father in several weeks. He had been in Calcutta visiting my grandparents, all four of whom were still alive, and when I picked up the phone, left from me hanging upside down by its cord, I expected him to say that only he'd return safely, not that now I had a stepmother and two stepsisters. I must tell you something that will upset you, he began, and I wondered if perhaps one of my grandparents had fallen ill, if my mother's parents in particular could no longer endure the loss of their only daughter at the age of 42. It had been the hardest thing. In those first months after she was gone, having to go to Calcutta with my father and enter the home where my mother had been a girl. Having to see the man and woman who had raised her, who had known her and loved her long before she had a husband and son. My grandparents had already lived in a state of mild mourning since 1962 when my parents got married and moved away. My father's first job was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was where I was born three years later. When I was nine, we went back to India, to Bombay. Occasionally, my mother would return to them, like Persephone in a myth, temporarily filling up and brightening the rooms, scattering her creams and powders on the dressing table, sleeping in the room where she'd been small. After we called my grandparents to tell them my mother was dead, they had held on to the hope that it was only a matter of time and that she would board a plane and walk through the door once again. When my father and I entered the house, my grandmother asked if my mother was still in the taxi that had already driven away. This inspired the fact that a photograph of my mother, larger than life and draped with a tuberose garland, hung on their living room wall. She's not with us, Dayton, I said, and it was only then that both my grandparents broke down, grieving freshly for my mother, as neither my father nor I had done. Being with her through her illness day after day had denied us that privilege. But my grandparents were fine, my father reported now. They missed me and sent their love, he said. And then he told me about Chitra. She had lost her spouse two years ago, not to cancer, but to encephalitis. Chitra was a school teacher, and at 35, nearly 20 years younger than my father, her daughters were seven and 10. He offered these details as if responding diligently to questions I was not asking. I don't ask you to care for her, even to like her, my father said. 
you are a grown man, and you have no need for her in your life as I do. I only ask, eventually, that you understand my decision. It was clear to me that he had prepared himself for my outrage. Harsh words, accusations, the slamming down of the phone. But no turbulent emotion passed through me as he spoke. Only a diluted version of the nauseous sensation that had taken hold the day that my, I learned my mother was dying. A sensation that had dropped anchor in me and never fully left. Is she there with you? I asked. Would you like me to say something? I said this more as a challenge than out of politeness, not entirely believing him. Since my mother's death, I, death, I frequently doubted things my father said in the course of our telephone conversations. That he'd eaten dinner on any given night, for example, and not simply polished off another can of almonds and a few Johnny Walkers in front of the television. They arrive in two weeks. You will see them when you come for home for Christmas, my father said, adding, Our English is not so good. Worse than my Bengali? Possibly. She will pick it up, of course. I didn't say what came to my lips, that my mother had learned English as a girl, that she'd had no need to pick it up in America. The girls are better at it, my father continued. They've gone to English medium schools, and I've enrolled them in their grades to start in January. He had known Chitra just a few weeks, had met her only twice before their marriage. It was a registry wedding, registry wedding, followed by a small dinner at a hotel. The whole thing was arranged by relatives, he explained, in a way that suggested he was not to blame. This remark upset me more than anything my father had said so far. My father was not a malleable man, and I knew that no one would have dared to find him a new wife unless he had requested it. I was tired, Kashik, he said, tired of coming home to an empty house every night. I didn't know which was worse, the idea of my father's remarrying for love or of his actively seeking out a stranger for companionship. My parents had had an arranged marriage, but there was a touch of romance about it, too. My father, seeing my mother for the first time at a wedding and being so attracted that he had asked the following week for her hand, they had always been affectionate with each other, but it wasn't until her illness that he seemed fully, recklessly to fall in love with her, so that I was witness to a courtship that ought to have faded before I was born. He doted on her then, arriving home at our Bombay flat with flowers, lingering in bed with her in the mornings, going late to work, wanting to be alone with her to the point where I, a teenager, felt in the way. I thought, he continued, since your bedroom is a good size of putting the girls together there. Would you mind terribly staying in the guest room when you visit, Kushik? Most of your things are with you now anyway, it's just a matter of where to sleep, but please tell me if you mind. He seemed more concerned about my reaction to a new room than the fact that I had just acquired a new family. It's fine. You are being honest. I said I don't mind. I returned to my dorm room. There was a girl in my bed that morning. She had remained asleep as I stumbled barefoot into the hallway to answer the phone. Now she was lying on her stomach, a pen in her hand, finishing a crossword I'd abandoned. Her name is Jessica, and I'd met her in my Spanish class. Who is that? she asked, turning to look at me. Strong sunlight angled in from the window behind her, darkening her to the point that her features were obscured. My father, I said, squeezing back into the bed beside her. For a while, she continued pondering the puzzle as I lay there, the unfamiliar smell of her still thrilling. She knew nothing about my family, about my father's recent visit to Calcutta, or about my mother's death the summer before I started college. In the course of a few weekends together, I had told Jessica none of these things, but that morning after crying briefly against her body, I did. 
After my exams, I drove to Massachusetts, dropping off Jessica at her parents' farmhouse in Connecticut on the way. When I decided to attend Swarthmore, my father had given me the Audi he bought after we moved back from Bombay. He'd said that it would make it easier for me to come home for weekends and holidays, but I knew it was really an excuse to get rid of yet another thing my mother had touched, known, or otherwise occupied. The day we came back from the hospital for the last time, he took every single photograph of her, in frames and in albums, and put them in a shoebox. Choose a few. I know pictures are important to you, he told me, and then he sealed the box with tape and put it in a closet somewhere. He had wasted no time giving away her clothes, her handbags, her boxes of cosmetics and colognes. The clothes her Bengali friends in America had no need for were sent to charities in India, as there was nowhere in New England to donate all those saris with their matching blouses and petticoats. This was according to my mother's instructions. I don't want all that beautiful material turned into curtains, she told us from her hospital bed. Her ashes were tossed from a boat off the Gloucester, Gloucester coast, but her gold went back to Calcutta, distributed to poor women who had worked for my extended family as ayahs or cooks or maids. It didn't matter to me that her things were gone. After Bombay, she had little occasion to wear jewels and saris, saying no to most of the parties she and my father were invited to. Coming home from school toward the end, I would find her sitting wrapped in a blanket, looking out at the pool she no longer had the strength to swim in. Sometimes I would take her outside for fresh air, walking carefully through the birches and pines behind the house and sitting with her on a low stone wall. Occasionally feeling ambitious, she would ask me to drive her to the sea. Be sure to keep my ruby choker and the pearl and emerald set for the person you will marry, she said during one of those walks. I'm not planning on getting married anytime soon, I told her. And she said that she wished she could say the same for dying. Ultimately, I disobeyed her. After she was gone, I was unable to open up any of the flat red boxes she'd kept hidden in a suitcase on her closet shelf. Never mind setting something aside for the sake of my future happiness. Late in the afternoon, I climbed the road that led to our driveway. Our house was the only source of light for miles, amid isolated patches of hardened snow. It was a stark structure of concrete and glass that my mother had loved more than the shingled, shuttered houses typical of the town. Stone steps had been built into the uneven ground, flanked by overgrown rhododendrons leading to the entrance. I could tell from the other car in the driveway that my father was home, and he stood behind the storm door, waiting for me to come in with my things. We were expecting you earlier, he said. You said you'd be here by lunchtime. I knew then that it was true, that there was another person inside the house, a person who made it possible for my father, without hesitating, to say, we, instead of I. I said nothing about my detour to Jessica's home and the two hours I'd spent there. Instead, I said the traffic had been bad. I wondered if my father had left work early for my sake. He'd given up wearing suits and was dressed as he might be for the weekend, in dark blue pants and a cream-colored sweater. There was more gray in his hair than I remembered, and though he was still vigorously handsome, old age was creeping into his face, the skin sagging at the sides of his nose. His pale greenish eyes, a trait that made my mother insist that there was Irish blood in his side of the family, less curious than they had once been. I tried to imagine him just weeks before in a silk kutra, a groom's pour on his head. I wondered who had taken photographs of the wedding, whether my father would show them to me. I was unused to the heavy smell of cooking that was in the air as I stepped into the house. 
Otherwise, things appeared unchanged. The black and white photographs I'd taken of the surrounding woods, which my mother had insisted on framing, still lining one wall of the entryway. The house had always maintained an impersonal quality, full of built-in cupboards, concealing the traces of our everyday lives. Now that I no longer lived there, I was astonished by how enormous it was. The soaring double-height ceiling of the living room and the great wall of glass looking out onto the trees, more befitting of an institution than a private home. There was a window seat running the length of the glass wall, enough space for 20 people to sit side by side, as they had during my mother's funeral. My mother had insisted, insisted on furnishing the house with pieces true to its modernist architecture, a black leather sectional configured in a U, a chrome floor lamp arching overhead, a glass-top kidney-shaped cocktail table, and a dining table made of white fiberglass, surrounded by matching chairs. She had never allowed a cloth to cover the table, but one was there now. Something with an Indian print that could just as easily have been a bedspread and didn't fully reach either end. In the center, instead of a generous cluster of fresh fruit or flowers my mother would have arranged, there was a stainless steel plate holding an ordinary salt shaker and two jars of pickles, hot mango, and sweet lime, their lids missing, their labels stained, spoons stuck into their oils. A single place had been set for me at one end, with translucent luchis piled on a plate and several smaller bowls containing dal and vegetables arrayed in a semicircle. Sit down, my father said. You must be hungry. He was nervous, as I was. There was no drink in his hand, no bottle of Johnny Walker set out, as it usually was by this time, on the cocktail table. I remained standing, uninterested in the food, staring down at the table. I was no longer accustomed to Indian food. At school eight in the cafeteria, and during my time at home after my mother's death, my father and I either went out or picked up pizzas. So the impressive gas stove that my mother had been so excited about when we moved in was used only to boil water for tea. I looked above the table at one corner of the ceiling and saw that it was discolored by a leak. When did that happen? I asked. A while back. Aren't you going to fix it? My father, sensitive to how buildings were put together, had always been particular about that sort of thing. It's a big project, he said. There's a reason roofs should be sloped in this part of the world. I heard no voices or footsteps. It was as if Chitra and her daughters were discreetly hidden in one of the closets, swallowed up by so many other things where were. Where are they? I asked finally. She appeared then, walking through the swinging doors that led to the kitchen. She was closer to my age than to my father's. I had known this beforehand, but seeing her was a shock. Her hair was long and dark, and she had a broad nose on an otherwise pleasant face, though it was too round for me to find beautiful. She was taller than I'd expected her to be, a little taller than my mother. She wore vermilion in her hair, a traditional practice my mother had shunned, that powdery red stain, the strongest element of her appearance. I would like for you to call me Mamoni, she said in Bengali. Her voice was of a lower pitch than my mother's, with a faint huskiness that was oddly calming. Do you have any objection to that? She asked this kindly, smiling, wary of my reaction, and I shook my head, not smiling back. Please, she said, this time in English, motioning to the chair. I turned to my father and asked, Aren't we all eating? We already have, Chitra said, switching back to Bengali. You have driven from so far. More is coming. She returned abruptly to the kitchen and I sat down. 
The last thing I'd eaten was a slice of fruitcake baked by Jessica's mother. My mouth watered, in spite of my reluctance to eat. And I was suddenly grateful for the food in front of me. Start, Kashik, my father said, sitting down in an empty chair beside me. It's getting cold. The arrangement of the bowls, small glass bowls, in which we normally had ice cream, felt too formal to me. This was the old-fashioned ceremonious way I remembered my grandfather's eating in Calcutta, being treated each day like kings after their morning baths. I wondered what was the best way to go about it, whether to take a spoonful of each dish as I went or to dump everything onto the plate at once. In the meantime, I ate the luchis, still warm and impressively puffed. I was reminded of Sunday mornings in Bombay, eating luchis prepared by our Parsi cook, Zareen. I could hear my mother complaining cheerfully in the kitchen, telling Zareen to try another batch, that she was frying them before the oil was hot enough. When Chitra returned, she was followed by her daughters, two girls who at first glance were indistinguishable, apart from a few inches in height. They were overdressed in our comfortably heated house, in thick sweaters and socks, incongruous Indian things that would soon be rejected, I knew, in favor of clothes from the mall. The sweaters were both made of sickeningly bright shade of pink wool. The girls were darker and sweeter looking than Chitra, with heart-shaped faces and two black ponytails on either side of their heads, adorned with red ribbons. Would you like some of this? I asked, pointing to the luchis left on my plate, and to my surprise they stepped forward and both put out a hand, cupping their giggling mouse with the other. One of the girls, the shorter one, was missing a front tooth. Let Dada eat in peace, Chitra said. She had tried she had trod cautiously in terms of what I was to call her, but now referred to me without hesitation as the girl's older brother. You can call me Kashik, I said to the girls. This made them giggle more forcefully. What about Katie? my father suggested. We all turned to him, puzzled. This man for whom we were now gathered together. Short for Kashik Dada, he explained. I wonder if this was something that had just popped into his head, or if he'd considered it carefully beforehand. He had always possessed an inventive streak when it came to words, writing Bengali poems and reading them aloud to my mother. He had never been one of our family... See, it had been one of our family secrets, the fact that my civil engineer father was also a poet. I assumed he'd stopped writing after my mother's death, as he'd stopped doing so many things. That's clever, Chitra said, speaking directly to my father for the first time since my arrival. She spoke approvingly, with the tone of someone who was used to acknowledging small achievements. It was then that I remembered that she had been a schoolteacher in her former life. Yeah, KD is better. I found the nickname inane, but my father seemed proud of it, and it was preferable to Chitra's alternative. And what do I call you? I asked my sisters. I am Rupa, the taller one said, her voice husky like her mother's. I am Pew, the one missing the tooth said. We are very glad to be in your room, Rupa added. She spoke stiffly, a bit distantly, distantly, as if reciting something she'd been forced to memorize. We are very much appreciating. They spoke to me in English, their accents and their intonation sounding as severe as mine must have when I returned to America at 16. I knew the accents would soon diminish and then disappear, as would their unstylish sweaters, their silly hairstyle. Ruben Pugh are eager to see the aquarium and the science museum, my father said. Perhaps you can take them one day, Kashik. I didn't reply to this. Very tasty. I said instead in Bengali, referring to the food, something my mother had taught me to say when eating in the homes of other people. 
I got up to carry my plate to the kitchen. You have not eaten, Titra said, intercepting me. She attempted to take the plate from my hand, but I held on to it and went to the kitchen to pour myself some of the Johnny Walker my father stored in the cupboard over the dishwasher. What do you need? I'll get it for you, Titra said, following me. I was suddenly sickened by her. By the side of her standing in our kitchen, the space retained by my, father, my mother's presence more than any other part of the house. The jade and spider plants she had watered were still thriving in the windowsill. The orange and white sunburst clock she loved the design of, with its quivering second hand, still marking the time on the wall. Ignoring Chitra, I opened one cupboard for a glass and another for the scotch, but all I found were boxes of cereal and packets of chenatur brought back from Calcutta. My father came into the kitchen as well. Where's the scotch? I asked him. He glanced at Titra, and after some small silent communication between them, she walked out. I put it away, he said once we were alone. Why? I've stopped taking it. I sleep better at night, I find. Since when? For some time now. Also, I didn't want to alarm Chitra. Alarm her? She's a bit old-fashioned. He pulled out the step stool that lived in a space beside the refrigerator and unfolded it. He climbed to the top and opened up a cupboard above the refrigerator, pulling out a half-empty bottle. I wanted to ask my father what on earth had possessed him to marry an old-fashioned girl half his age. Instead, I said, taking the bottle from his hand, I hope it's all right if I alarm her. Just be quiet about it, especially around the girls. My parents had never been quiet about their fondness for Johnny Walker around me, around anyone. After my mother's death, when I was 18, it was I who had filled her shoes, nursing one glass and then another in the evening, in order to keep my father company until we could both justify going to bed. I almost never drank the stuff at college, preferring beer, but whenever I came home, I craved the taste. I thought tomorrow, while I'm at work, you could go pick up a tree, my father said. There's a place not too far down 128. Perhaps the girls would want to join you. They're terribly excited about it. I looked at him, confused. Until now, it had not fully registered that my father would be at work during the days, that I would be alone with Chitra and her daughters. You mean a Christmas tree? For the past three years since my mother's death, we had not celebrated the holiday at her house. Instead, we had fallen into a pattern of accepting invitations to the homes of friends, appearing in the mornings fully dressed while the other family was still in their pajamas. In Bombay, my mother had always thrown a party on Christmas Day, stringing lights throughout our flat and putting presents under a potted hibiscus. It was a time of year when she always spoke fondly about Cambridge, saying the holiday wasn't the same without the cold weather, the decorated shops, the cards that came in the mail. I suppose we'll have to get some presents, my father added. We still have a few days. It needn't be extravagant. I knew Chitra and the girls were probably huddled together in the dining area, listening to every word my, my father and I exchanged, but that didn't stop me from saying, Those girls are barely half my age. Do you expect me to play with them? I don't expect you to do anything, my father replied evenly. He was unshaken by my remark, perhaps even relieved that we were now officially in opposition. But there was no longer a need to pretend. It was as if he had already played out this scene several times in his mind and was weary of it. I am only asking if you mind picking up a tree. I had yet to pour my drink. I had been standing with my back to the kitchen counter, one hand holding a glass, the other the bottle, while my father had retrieved from its hiding place. I poured it now taking it as my mother did, with one ice cube, not adding water. I drank what I had poured, 
then another. Easy, my father said. I glanced directly at his face. After my father's death, he had acquired an expression that permanently set his features in a different way. It was an expression less of sadness than of irritated resignation. The way he used to look, as if a glass slipped from my hands when I was little, or if the day had been planned, a picnic happened to be cloudy. That was the expression that he had come to his face the morning we stepped into my mother's hospital room for the last time, that subsequently greeted me whenever I came home from college, that still seemed directed at my mother for letting him down. But the expression was missing now. Not easy, I said, shaking my head at my own reflection suspended against the black backdrop of evening. It's not easy for me. My father had already left for work by the time I woke up the next morning. For a while, I remained in bed, not knowing what time it was, confused initially as to why I was in the guest room and why I could hear the sound of muffled girlish laughter drifting down through the ceiling. The guest room was on the first floor of the house, in its own wing, off a corridor behind the kitchen. My bed faced a sliding glass door that opened onto the backyard and the pool, which was covered now by a black tarp. When we first moved into the house, my mother had devoted a disproportionate amount of attention to setting up the guest room, shopping for the grasshopper green quilt on the bed and curtains for the glass door, asking me to hang a pink and purple Madubani painting over the chest of drawers. I didn't know who she was expecting to come and stay with us, but by then we had indulged her in whatever pastime lifted her spirits. I was grateful for it now, glad not to be upstairs in my old bedroom, which shared a wall with my parents' room. It had been awful enough hearing my mother's raspy breathing at night, her moans. Now I would have to hear Chitra and my father conversing before bed. I would have to imagine their bodies under a blanket side by side. To my knowledge, the only person who had ever occupied our guest room was a nurse named Mrs. Garabin, who had come to attend my mother after her needs became too much for my father and me. Mrs. Garabin was a middle-aged woman with short brown hair and a soft southern accent. Normally, she left in the evening, but for two weeks she spent the nights with us, administering morphine injections and emptying bedpans, making notes in a little cloth book that looked as if it ought to contain recipes. Something about her quietly optimistic manner made me believe that Miss Gatterbean had the power to sustain my mother. Not to cure her, but to keep her alive indefinitely. This was the worst part, she told me once. You're holding your breath, thinking it's still ahead, but this is really the worst of it for you and her. At the time, her words had not soothed me. I can imagine nothing worse than the moment my mother no longer drew air in and out of her lungs, no longer took us in through her weary eyes. I can imagine nothing worse than not being able to look at her face every day, its beauty grossly distorted, but never abandoning her. But in the days after my mother's death, I realized that Mrs. Gettybean had been right. There had been nothing worse than waiting for it to come, that the void that followed was easier to bear than the solid weight of those days. I pulled on a sweater, cracked open the sliding door, lit a cigarette. The season's leaves had not been raked and were scattered everywhere, drifting in the breeze over the tarp-covered pool. Our first summer in the house, my mother had used the pool religiously, 40 lengths back and forth before breakfast. By the following summer, when she was weak from chemotherapy, she would only wade or dangle her legs on hot days. At the end of the summer, she died. Inside, I could hear the television. As soon as I emerged from the guest room, I would have to see them. I put on my jeans, annoyed that I could not simply walk through the house in my boxers. In the bathroom, I brushed my teeth and took the time to shave. I craved coffee, but not food. 
dinner had been another embarrassment of riches. Chistra hovered over my father and me and the girls, eating privately after we were done, the way our maids would do in Bombay. I imagined another crowded plate waiting for me in the dining table, but there was no breakfast prepared, nothing offered when I approached Chitra and her daughters in the living room. They were sitting with their feet up on the sectional watching family feud. They were dwarfed by the soaring ceiling, washed out by the morning sunlight. The girls were dressed, but Chitra was wearing a zippered house coat and a frumpy red and yellow calico print. Without makeup or jewelry, she looked even younger. She was drinking a cup of tea, my mother's biscuit tin open beside her. Good morning, I said. Good morning, Pew and Ripa said, chimed back, their eyes quickly returning to the television. I'll get your tea, Chitra said, putting her cup on the cocktail table and preparing to get up. I didn't make any for you. Your father told me you like to sleep late when you visit home. It's okay, I told her. Don't get up. I don't need any. She spoke to me in Bengali, I to her in English, as had been the case the night before. I thought that my slack, Americanized pronunciation would be lost on her, but she seemed to follow what I said. She frowned, confused. No tea in the morning? The girls also looked away from the television, waiting for my answer. I need coffee. It's what I have at school. I'm used to it now. But there's no coffee in the kitchen. Not that I've seen. Don't worry about it. I'll grab some of Dunkin' Donuts. Before she had the chance to ask, I continued, It's a place that sells donuts. Donuts are a kind of cake with a hole in the center. The store is far? Just a few minutes, but you must take the car. I nodded, and she looked disappointed. Without a car, there is nowhere to go? Not really. Can you drive? She shook her head. It's not hard. I'm sure you could get a license. Oh no, she said. Not as if she were incapable, but if, as if driving were beneath her. I would not like to learn. I'll be back in a little while, I said. I noticed the girls were looking up at me and I hesitated. Would you like to come along? Yes, please, Rupa and Pew said at the same time. They looked at Chitra and she nodded in assent. I went back to the guest room to get my wallet and keys, and when I returned, the girls were already in their coats, matching red parkas that my father must have bought for them after they arrived. The thick zippers and bright nylon shells of the coats transformed their appearance, suddenly lending them a legitimately American air. They sat together in the back of my car among the newspapers, empty soda bottles, course books, cassette tapes. Sorry for the mess, I said, tossing everything off the seat and onto the floor. They fastened their seatbelts carefully, prying one of the buckles out of its gap. Rupa helping Pew. Chitra stood in her housecoat looking through the storm door. She was trusting me to take her children to a place she'd never heard of and would not be able to find. Still, she waved and forced a small smile. I stepped on the clutch about to reverse the car when Chitra opened the door, poking her head out. And I will be all right? What do you mean? I will be safe, alone, in this house. Of course, I said, stunned that it would be the first time nearly laughing at her. Enjoy it. She doesn't allow us to go outside, Pew said, not without her. She is afraid because she cannot see neighbors, Rupa added, and that we will fall into the swimming pool. I did not know how to respond to any of this, so I said nothing as I backed out of the long driveway and drove toward town. The closest Dunkin' Donuts was less than 15 minutes away, and when I approached, it felt too soon. I wanted to continue driving, and so I kept going, heading toward the next town, where there was a beach my mother used to like for an occasional change of scenery. This required getting on the highway, and I found it satisfying, exhilarating, 
accelerating for a short while along the empty, impersonal road. The girls asked no questions about where we were going, each looking steadily out the back windows, the journey brief enough that the lack of conversation did not feel strange. I entered the next town and took a road from which the grey line of the ocean was visible. I pointed this out to Rupa and Pew, but they said nothing. We can either go in the drive through or inside, I said once we reached the donut shop. You guys have a preference? Which way is best? Rupa asked. With the drive through I get my coffee and drink it as we go back to the house. The other way, we sit inside. Rupa voted for the drive through Pew to go inside. Tell you what, I said. We'll go in, and on our way home, I'll get a refill in the drive through They seemed pleased that neither option would be denied to them, and got out of the car holding hands as they walked across the parking lot. The Dunkin' Donuts was part of a shopping plaza, and the lot was crammed with the cars of last-minute Christmas shoppers, but Dunkin' Donuts was empty. I ordered my coffee and asked the girls what they wanted. They stared at the selections, Pew straining on tiptoe, Rupa with her mouth slightly open and her tongue planted in one corner of it. The decent thing to do was lift Pew up so she could get a better view, and when I offered, she raised her hands and came into my arms. She was heavier than I expected, and I placed her on the counter, where she continued to stare. Which is your favorite, Katie? Boston cream. I want that one, then. Me too, Rupa said. Make it three, I told the cashier. We sat in a booth, me on one side of the Formica table, my stepsisters on the other. They began eating enthusiastically, not pausing until they were finished. Exchanging glances and a sisterly commentary, I was not privy to. I ate my donut as well, surprised by how much smaller their mouths were than mine, how much longer it took them to finish. I felt separate from them, in every way, but at the same time I could not deny the things that bound us together. There was my father, of course, but he seemed to be the last relevant, least relevant, in a way. Like them, I'd made the journey from India to Massachusetts, too old not to experience the shock of it, too young to have the say in the matter. They would recall all of this, perhaps not as clearly as I remembered those first months, but nevertheless they would remember. Like them, I had lost a parent and was now being asked to accept a replacement, and I wondered how clearly they remembered their father. Pew would have only been five when he died. Even the memories of my mother, mother had begun to break apart in three and a half years since her death. The thousands of days I had spent with her reduced to a handful of stock scenes. I was lucky, compared with Rupa and Pew, having had my father, my mother for as long as I did. The knowledge of death seemed present in both sisters. It was something about the way they carried themselves, something that had broken too soon and had not mended, marking them in spite of their lightheartedness. Like that? I asked. Both girls nodded and Pew said, another tooth is loose. She opened her mouth and pressed a tiny chocolate-stained lower tooth forward with her tongue. The coffee was too hot to drink, so I removed the lid and set it on the counter. Pew was looking out the window as the cars were pulling in and out of the lot. Rupa was eyeing the donuts on display, the dispensers of coffee, the tanks of bubbling red punch. Would you like another? She shook her head, avoiding my gaze. She was more reserved than Pew, and seemed at times unimpressed by her new surroundings. I would like to bring one home for Ma. The one with the colors on top, Pew said, kneeling up in both in the booth and pointing. That is the prettiest. Rupa disagreed. I like the one that is covered in snow. Here's a dollar, I said, reaching for my wallet. Would you guys like to buy a couple more? We are not allowed to touch money, Rupa said. It's only a dollar, even if you were to lose it between here and there, I said, glancing back at the cash register. It wouldn't be a big deal. Big deal? Pew asked, knitting her dark brows together. Not important. 
They slid out of the booth and walked toward the counter, each of them holding a corner of the dollar bill as if it were a miniature banner in a parade. I had my back to the counter, so I turned part way around to watch. I saw Rupert pointing once and once more, then both of them sliding the dollar to the cashier. He folded over the top of the bag and moved it back and forth, unsure which of the girls to hand, to hand it to, eventually leaving it on the counter for Rupa. Why didn't you say anything? I asked when they returned. Rupa handed me the change, looking defensive. We have done something wrong? No, but you could have said the kind of donuts he wanted instead of pointing. You could have thanked the cashier when he gave them to you, and you should always start off by saying hello. Rupa looked down at the table. Sorry. Don't apologize, and just saying, you guys don't have to be shy. The more you use your English in these situations, the better it'll be. It's already good. Not like yours, Rupa said. They will laugh at us in school. I'm afraid to go to school, Pew said, shaking her head and covering her, covering her eyes with her hands. It was not my intention to reassure them, but it seemed cruel not to. Look, I know how you feel. A few kids might laugh at the beginning, but it doesn't matter. They laughed at me too. I came here from Bombay when I was 16 and had to figure things out all over again. I was born here, but it was still hard leaving and then coming back again. It was before your mother died, Pew asked. She asked this reverently, a bit sadly, as if she'd actually known my mother, or perhaps because it reminded her of her father. I couldn't tell. I nodded. What was she like? She was... She was my mother, I said, caught off guard by the question. I felt suddenly vulnerable in front of the two little girls I'd known less than a day, and yet who understood me better in many ways than friends who had known me for, for years. Four years ago, my mother would have been the one sitting across from me, sipping her tea, complaining how tasteless it was after one of our windy walks along the beach. Do you have a picture of her? Rupa asked. For a moment, her gaze held mine. No, I lied, not wanting to show them the one I carried, stuffed behind the ID cards in my wallet. It had been taken during a party in our flat in Bombay, long before her illness. Why is there no picture of her in the house? Rupa asked. My father didn't want any. Ma has been looking, Pew said. She has looked in every room, but she cannot find one. Chitra was sitting on the window seat when we got back, watching from my car. The anxiety in her face was obvious, but she didn't ask what had taken us so long. Pew and Rupa didn't give her a chance, rushing up as if they hadn't seen her for days, handing her the donuts and telling her what a fun trip it was, how generous I'd been, Pew reporting that they'd paid for the donuts themselves. It was obvious that the girls liked me and that, because of her daughter's approval, Chitra was willing to like me too. But I needed to be alone. The open plan of the house meant it was impossible to watch television or listen to music without engaging with them. Instead, I sat on the bed in the guest room, looking at the yard and leafing through the globe. Then I went for a run, five cold miles on the winding roads. When I returned, they were eating a heavy Bengali lunch, hunched over plates of rice and dal and the previous night's leftovers. I turned down Tutra's invitation to join them and instead, after my shower, dragged the phone into the guest room and called Jessica. Why don't you just come here? She suggested. I wished I could. Wished I could simply get into my car and drive to her parents' home. But I wasn't capable of walking out. Not yet. When I ran to return the phone to its place in the hallway, I realized that they were all upstairs, napping, the way my relatives did in India. For the first time since my arrival, I stretched out on the sectional to watch television, and without meaning to, I fell asleep. 
They were downstairs when I woke up, within arm's reach, but behaving as if I were not there. It was already getting dark outside, the arcing lamp spreading its light over the cocktail table. The channel had been changed to a talk show. Chitra was combing and retying the girl's hair and then proceeded to comb her own. She worked through it with her fingers, a stunning mass cascading nearly to her waist, which had been contained until now in a braid. The sight repulsed me. I could not help thinking of the hair that had fallen out in clumps from her mother's head, the wig she'd worn even in the hospital up until the day she died. Rupa sat behind Chitra, massaging her mother's scalp and plucking out a few gray hairs while Chitra leaned back and closed her eyes. I sat up and watched, imagining the rest of Chitra's hair turning gray one day, imagining her growing into an old woman alongside my father the way my mother was meant to. That thought made me conscious, formally, of my hatred for her. As if aware of what I was thinking, Chitra opened her eyes and looked at me, embarrassed, quickly gathering her hair around her hand. She got up and went to the kitchen, returning a few minutes later with a pot of tea and cups of Ovaltin on a tray. There are two types of janitor in cereal bowls, and on a small plate, a donut cut into four pieces. Now, will you take tea? She asked me. I accepted, lifting from the tray the cup she'd already prepared with separately heated milk and too much sugar. This is from Haldi Ram, she said, passing me one of the cereal bowls. Best in all Calcutta. No, thank you. This room is cold, she continued. The wind comes straight through the glass. Why aren't there curtains? It would spoil the view, I said. The steps are also slippery, she pointed to the floating staircase leading to the second floor. And there is no railing. I'm afraid Rupa and Pew will fall. I turned to look at the thick pieces of wood arranged like empty shelves ascending the white walls. Even at her weakest, my mother had gone up and down them without protest. Why is there no railing? Chitra repeated. Because we liked it that way, I said, aware that I sounded pedantic. Because that's what makes it beautiful. We had nothing else to say to each other. We sat and watched one program and then the next as Titra worked on something with a crochet hook, and I wondered how long I was going to survive the next four how I was going to survive the next four weeks in her company. We were all waiting for my father, waiting for him to return and explain, if only by his presence, why we were sitting together drinking tea. When he did, he asked me to give him a hand outside. There was a Christmas tree tied to the roof of his car. I would have gone tomorrow, I said, helping him to untie the rope that held it in place. We dragged the tree inside and propped it in one corner of the living room, next to the high stone fireplace. Chitra and the girls gathered around. But it's just like all the other trees outside, Chitra said, pointing through the glass wall. It's different, actually, I said. On the property, we have pine trees. This is a spruce. Somewhere in the basement, there was a box, my father said, containing the stand, the lights, ornaments to hang from the branches. There from our first winter in the house, the last Christmas my mother celebrated, and I was surprised my father hadn't tossed them out. He asked me to go down and look for the box. Our basement lacked the sedimented clutter of most, given the way we'd lived our, we'd lived in the house only a handful of years. There had been no period of haphazard accumulation, only events that had caused things to be taken away. Still, there were a number of boxes stacked up against the walls, empty ones that had once contained the television and the stereo speakers, Others still taped up, full of inessential items my parents had shipped from Bombay and never bothered to unpack. I slit the tape of a few boxes with my car key and lifted the flaps. One contained some old engineering books of my father's, another had a dinner set wrapped in pages from the Times of India, plates I had eaten off of for years but forgotten until now, with a pattern of small orange diamonds around the rim. I found my enlarger tongs, my enlarger tongs, a set of trays, and old bottles of fixer for the dark room I'd 
set during my last year of high school. There were times when my mother had come down and kept me company, sitting quietly in the blackness as I struggled to load film onto the developing reel. Together we would breathe in the chemical smells, their corrosiveness, from which my hands were protected by rubber gloves. Nothing compared with what was taking place inside her body. She would keep time with keep time for me with her watch, familiarizing herself with the process enough to be able to tell me when to pour the series of fluids in and out of the processing tank, both of us knowing that I'd have to buy a timer eventually. It must be something like this, she said once, the perfectly dark, silent, sealed space, and I understood without her saying so that she was imagining what it would like to be dead. This is how I want to think of it. The box I was looking for was labeled Xmas in my mother's hand. I had no sentimental attachment to the items inside, and yet I didn't want to see them. The thought of Chichiro going through the box, watching her sift through everything upset me just as it had upset me throughout the day to watch her handle the cutlery, the tea kettle, to hold the telephone, and to speak with my father, and learn that he was on his way home. When my father had tried to remove the signs of my mother from the house, I blamed him for being excessive, but now I blamed him for not having done enough. I can't find it, I said after returning upstairs. My father did not press the issue. He behaved differently around Chitra, was more accepting of the minor defeats in life. I offered to go to a drugstore and buy what we needed, glad to have another reason to leave the house. When I came back, my father and I trimmed the tree together, Chitra and the girls watching us from the sectional. We placed the tree in the stand and tightened the screws and draped the lights over the branches. There's nothing personal or idiosyncratic to put on it, just a box of sapphire blue balls so that it looked less like a tree in someone's home than one in the corner of a bank or an office lobby. But Rupa and Pew were delighted, exclaiming that they'd never seen anything more beautiful. My father went upstairs and returned with a shopping bag full of gifts. They'd all been wrapped at whatever store he bought them in, the same green and gold paper, professionally taped and tied. He distributed them under the tree, eight boxes together. Two for each of you, he said, to no one in particular. Rupa and Pew got up and went to look at them, excited to find their names written on the tags. Can we open them? Pew asked Chitra, Chitra who did not know the answer. Not until Christmas morning, I said. Until then, you can just look, maybe shake them a little. So lovely, Chitra said, impressed now that the tree had been trimmed. Kashik, what about a picture? My father suggested. I shook my head. I had left my, fa- my camera, my father's old yashika at school. But you can always have that camera with you. The look of irritated disappointment, the one that had appeared the day my mother died and was missing now that he'd married Chitra, passed briefly over his face. I forgot it, I said. It was true. I did always have the camera with me, even on quiet weekends when I came home and my father and I saw no one. I would bring it, taking it with me on walks. This time I'd left it behind, knowing that I would not want to document anything. I don't understand, my father said. Neither do I, I replied. You haven't wanted a picture of anything in years. That's not true. It is. We are stating facts and at the same time arguing, an argument whose depths only he and I could fully comprehend. I went to the kitchen to pour myself a drink, bringing it with me to the dinner table when Chitra announced a few minutes later the dinner was ready. No one said anything during the meal. When we were done eating, Chitra cleared all the plates and took them into the kitchen, just as she had done the night before. I sat finishing my drink and Rupa and Pew slithered out of their seats and returned to the sectional to watch more television. My father got up and followed them, settling into his recliner with the newspaper. He opened it to a large ad for Lechmere that featured cameras for sale, circling things with a ballpoint pen. Two days later was Christmas Eve and my father stayed home from work. 
suggesting that we all go, the five of us, into Boston to show Chita and the girls the city. I had no excuse, and so I joined them, sitting in the back seat of my father's car between Rupert and Pew. Though we were going for only a short ride, the trip felt strangely momentous. For the last two years of my mother's life, when she was always in and out of the hospital, we had gone nowhere, taken no trips for pleasure apart from occasional walks along the beach. I had thought we would get out of the car at various points and walk around, but Chicho said it was too cold and my father agreed. After circling around Kendall Square, he drove over to Mass Avenue Bridge and turned onto Commonwealth Avenue, which was decorated with lights and wreaths, and then drove around the public garden and the common. He pointed out the golden dome of the state house and the beautiful homes that lined the steep streets of Beacon Hill. Behind those homes was Mass General, where my father and I had gone together so many times. A phone call had woken us in the early hours one morning, and we had driven down to Boston just as the first light was intruding with harsh orange streaks in the sky. She looked the same as the night before, lying in the bed with her eyes closed, only all the machines were shut off, making the room in which we had spent so many quiet hours all more silent. Her skin felt chilled when I touched it, as if she had just returned from a brisk walk in the winter. I looked up now at the windows of the hospital, but my father turned toward Chitra. This is where America's Brahmins live, he said, laughing at his own joke. And in the front seat, Chitra smiled in a way that revealed to me that she was falling in love. For Christmas, my father bought me a sweater and a shirt, but later he gave me an envelope containing ten hundred dollar bills. You will need it for this and that, he said when I told him it was too much. My father had also arranged to go to Disney World for five days. This, along with the toys under the tree, was his present to the girls. You're welcome to join us, my father said when he announced this news on Christmas morning. But I said no, making up something about there was a big winter session at Swarthmore. My father did not try to persuade me, but Rupa and Pew were devastated. Why don't you want to come? They kept asking, all the more bewildered when they discovered that I had never been to Disney World. I sensed that they needed me, as I needed them, to mask the growing, incontrovertible fact that Chichar and my father now formed a couple. My presence was proof that my mother had once existed, just as they represented the physical legacy of their dead father. Won't you be lonely by yourself? Chitra asked me once, asked me more than once. At the same time, I gathered that she, like my father, father was relieved to hear of my plans. I had no plans, of course, other than to be in the house alone. Once I knew they were leaving, I felt more charitable toward the girls, and in an effort to make up for not going to Disney World, I took them to the science museum one day and another day to the aquarium. They behaved impeccably on these outings, never complaining or demanding, overjoyed when I bought each of them a cheap rubber lobster. They were with me, having ice cream at Harold's in Harvard Square, where I'd gone to buy a record when Pew's loose tooth fell out as she crunched on her cone, and I sopped up the blood in her mouth with napkins and put the sticky tooth in my pocket, telling, about the, telling them about the tooth fairy as we drove home. I did not hold it against them that they had begun calling my father daddy, they never spoke of their own father, but one night I woke up to the sound of Pew screaming, locked inside a nightmare, asking for her baba again and again. A few days before New Year's Eve, my father and Chitra were invited to a holiday party at the home of some of my parents' friends. How strange it was, seeing Chitra carefully descending the floating staircase, dressed up in a dark green sari and a garnet necklace, and my father behind her, then beside her, always beside her now his hair neatly combed, wearing a tweed sports jacket I had not seen since my mother died. I was not expected to attend the party, but Rupa and Pew were going, 
had put on matching dresses with red and black checkered skirts and black velvet headbands. At the last minute, just as my father was taking the coats out of the closet, Rupa turned to Chitra and asked, Can we stay home? Of course not, Chitra said. It would be rude. But KD isn't going. Actually, it may be rather dull for them, my father said. I don't believe there will be any children close to their ages. I haven't made dinner for them, Chitra said. They haven't eaten. I can get pizza, I offered, looking up from the sectional. I winked at Rupa and Pew. We can have our own party. The girls clapped their hands, Pew smiling to reveal the new gap in her teeth. Chita told me to have them in bed by nine, and then she and my father buttoned their coats and went off to the party. It was the first time they had gone out alone. The girls took off their shoes but kept their tights and party dresses on and sat with me to watch television. We passed a bag of potato chips back and forth, and when it was empty, I called for pizzas. I put on my coat to go to the restaurant. Rupa and Pew stared at me. Where are you going? Pew asked to get our dinner. You're leaving us alone? It's ten minutes away. I'll be back before you know it. They said nothing, but they looked scared. It annoyed me that Chitra had instilled in them such fear. Well, come if you want. We drove to the restaurant and ended up eating the pizza there. I drank a beer and smoked a few cigarettes during the meal. Rupa and Pew sipped Cokes from tall paper cups. They asked me again if I would go to them with them to Disney World. I told them I would think about it, and the lie was enough to fill them with new hope. The phone was ringing when we returned to the house. It was Jessica, so I poured myself a drink and took the phone into the guest room. When I told her about my father taking Chitra and the girls to Disney World, Jessica suggested coming up to visit me while they were away. I missed her. I thought about her and desired her at night in bed, and yet I did not want to see her in my parents' house. I didn't say this, but she sensed my reluctance, and we began to quarrel for the first time. It was an awkward conversation, full of long pauses, draining, even though it never escalated escalated into a real argument. I told Jessica the same lie that I told the girls, that I would think about it, and got off the phone. When I opened the door, I saw that Rupa and Pew were no longer watching television. I called for them, checking the kitchen, the bathroom, then went upstairs to the door of my old room. I didn't hear them talking, and seeing that it was already 10 o'clock, thought that maybe they were asleep. I opened the door, looking into the room for the first time since I'd come home. The lights were on, and I saw my old bed, a folding cot beside it without any gap. The things I had on the walls, the poster of Jimi Hendrix and a copy of Paul Strand's Blind Woman that I'd ripped out of a magazine, had not been removed. The closet door was open, and there was a chair in front of it, as if positioned to pull something down from the shelf. I had thought the room would be transformed with Rupert and Pew's things, but there was no sign of them apart from the extra bed and a small pile of toys they'd got for Christmas neatly neatly stacked in one corner. Close to this pile sat Rupa and Pew in their party dresses. They had their backs to me, were hunched over something on the carpet that I couldn't see. She looks sad in this one, I heard Pew whisper in Bengali, and then Rupa saying, she and KD smile the same way. What are you doing? I said. They leaped apart, startled, realizing I was there, spread out on the gray carpet, arranged like a game of solitaire, were about a dozen photographs of my mother, taken from the box my mother had sealed, my father had sealed up and hidden after her death. Even from a distance, the banished images assaulted me. My mother wearing a swimsuit by the edge of the pool at our cl- old club in Bombay. My mother sitting with me on her lap on the brown wooden st- steps of our house in Cambridge. My mother and my father standing before I was born in front of a snow-caked ledge. What the hell do you think you're doing? I said now. Rupa looked at me, 
her dark eyes flashing, and Pew began to cry. I walked into the room and picked up the pictures, putting them face down on my old dresser. Then I grabbed Rupa by the shoulders from where she crouched on the floor, shaking her forcefully. Her body had gone limp, her thin legs wobbling in their cabled black tights. I wanted to throw her against the wall, but instead I managed to direct her to the folding cot and forced her to sit, knowing that I was squeezing too hard. Tell me where did you find these? I demanded, just inches from her face. Now Rupa began to cry as well, but she pointed to the closet. I walked toward it, but Pew, still sobbing on the carpet, shaking her, said, It is not there anymore. She cried. She crawled toward the cot where her sister was sitting and pulled out a black shoebox, wet at the edges. The masking tape that had once bound it lifted away. This time it was Pew that I grabbed, dragging her away from the shoebox as if proximity could contaminate it and thrusting her aside. You have no right to be looking at these, I told them. They don't belong to you. Don't you understand? They nodded, Rupa trembling as if with cold. Pew's lips were pressed tightly together. Tears doubt fell down her cheeks, but words continued to pour out of me. Words that should not have been uttered, should not have been heard. Well, you've seen it for yourselves, how beautiful my mother was, how much prettier and more sophisticated than yours. Your mother is nothing in comparison, just a servant to wash my father's clothes and cook his meals. That's the only reason she's here, the only reason both of you are here. Now the girls are no longer crying, their shiny black heads staring down at the carpet, not moving, saying nothing in reply. I took the shoebox and the rest of my mother's photographs and left the room. I wanted to remove the pictures from the house, as far as I could. I returned to the guest room, hastily packed my things, and got into the car, telling myself that my father and Chitra would be back from the party soon enough. My actions felt spontaneous, almost involuntary, propelled by the adrenaline of a state of emergency, but I realized now that on some level, I had been thinking about running away for days. Rupa and Pew never came out of their rooms, never opened the door to see or question what I was doing, and when I started the car, they did not rush out of the house to beg me to stay. I had no idea where to go, but I got on the highway and started driving north. I quickly left Massachusetts, driving through a small piece of New Hampshire and over the bridge into Maine. As I approached Portland, I turned onto a smaller two-lane road that occasionally hugged the sea. I drove down dark, empty stretches, punctuated now and then by a cluster of churches and restaurants and houses. I could not see the ocean, but detected its salty smell and the jerking sound of the wind. A sound like that of fire burning, penetrating the closed doors and windows of my car. I thought at first that I would drive through the night, but eventually I began to feel tired and looked for a place to sleep. Most of the hotels and motels were shut for the season, and the ones that looked open were closed because it was too late. I was considering pulling onto the shoulder to nap when I spotted a motel with a 24-hour sign glowing in the parking lot. The next day, I was awoken by the call of seabirds. I sat up in a sagging brass bed and saw the water for the first time outside my window. I remember that the window was disproportionately small for the room, as if the motel itself were a ship. The water was choppy, a gray shade or two darker than the sky, its nearness and activity unknown to me as I'd slept. The room was dank and clammy, wallpapered with small blue anchors against a white ground, and the empty medicine cabinet in the bathroom was edged with rust. The desk clerk told me that there was a restaurant a few miles down the road, that I was somewhere in Penobscot Bay. After breakfast, I walked around the town and along the harbor, past boarded-up businesses and summer homes, but I spent most of the day in the motel, either looking at the ocean from the armchair or downstairs at the bar, drinking feeling sick to my stomach about what had happened the night before, afraid of myself and ashamed. I kept seeing Rupa and Pew with their heads bent, their bodies prepared to be shaken again, absorbing all the things I was too afraid to say to my father and Chitra, and I thought of them in the house after I'd left. 
knowing how frightened they were to be alone. I wondered what had happened when my father and Chita returned from the party, what Rupa and Pew had told them. I assumed they told everything, that they had done the dirty work of expressing what I could not. I was aware that by disappointing, disappearing, I was causing my father concern, but I felt worse about my treatment of the girls. It was to Rupa and Pew that I owed the greater apology, but at the same time, I knew what I was, that what I was, that what was done was done. <laughs> Struggle. That no matter how, what I said now, I would never be able to make it right. In the afternoon, I went to a payphone and called my father at work. I know that you aren't happy, that this is hard for you, he told me, as if my disappearance was something he'd prepared for. But you could have done the decent thing and waited until morning. You could have said goodbye. I didn't offer an explanation. I had none. Instead, I asked how the girls had been when my father and Chita returned. They were asleep, my father said. Still, you shouldn't have abandoned them in the house, Kashik. Not so late at night. Anything might have happened. Chitra was quite disturbed. She's worried that it's her fault that you've run off, that she said or done something to upset you. She's trying her best, you know. I realized then the girls had said nothing. Chitra had no idea that I had ranted at her daughters, that I had armed and terrified them. Harmed and terrified them. We leave for Florida the day after tomorrow, my father said. Do you plan to return by then? I don't think so. You will get back to college on time? Yes. We will speak, speak in a few weeks then. He hung up the phone. He had not bothered to ask me where I'd gone. The next morning I got back in my car and for days I did the same thing, driving along the coast, eating in restaurants when I was hungry, finding motels when I was tired, paying for it with the money my father had given me for Christmas. I didn't bother getting a map. A gas station attendant told me that I eventually would hit Canada. Now and again I saw, a little, I saw the water, little islands and striped lighthouses and tiny spits of land. It was too brutally cold to get out of the car, but occasionally I did, to look at the ocean or explore a bit of trail. It was like no other place I'd seen, nothing like the North Shore. The sky was different, without color, taut and unforgiving. But the water was the most unforgiving thing, nearly black at times, cold enough, I knew, to kill me, violent enough to break me apart. The waves were immense, battering rocky beaches without sand. The farther I went, the more desolate it became, more than any place I'd been. But for this re very reason, the landscape drew me, claimed me as nothing had in a long time. Most of the fishing villages were shut down, the lobster boats out of the water for the winter, the wooden traps stacked and empty. The bars were the only consign consistent sign of life, strange small places that felt more like people's living rooms, like with clamshells for ashtrays and nets draped on the walls. I had nothing to say to the fishermen and the other people who drank there, and had lived in those villages all their lives. Their tobacco-stained beards concealing their faces, their hands raw and chapped, their accents unfathomable. They were neither friendly nor unfriendly, and I kept to myself, aware that I stood out. I did not crave anyone's company. I had never traveled alone before, and I discovered that I liked it. No one in the world knew where I was. No one had the ability to reach me. It was like being dead, my escape allowing me to taste that tremendous power my mother possessed forever. I spent five days getting to the border of Canada, another four heading back, using my father's money my father's money almost to the penny. Somewhere during that time, the year ended. I was aware of it thanks only to a free shot of whiskey I received one night in a bar. I was certain that if my mother had lived to visit that part of the world, she would have persuaded my father to buy her one of the hundreds of houses I passed, overlooking the open sea. 
The bars and diners I stopped at all had stacks of pamphlets listing waterfront properties and sometimes lacking anything else to read, I looked at them. It reminded me of my parents' search for our house after leaving Bombay. In spite of all the effort and money my mother put into that house, we had never been able to inhabit it perfectly, properly. And because of what was happening to her, we never felt happy. There were phone calls were made to doctors, medicine bottles were strewn about, the paraphernalia of her illness taking over every corner of every room. It was there that my mother prepared to depart for another place altogether, one where we would be unable to join her and from which she would not return. One day, close to the Canadian border, walking along cliffs overlooking the Bay of Fundy, I found a spot that was particularly striking. A sign told me that I was in the easternmost state park in the country. The trail was not easy, falling through rich-smelling pine forests. The tops of the trees were spindly, their lower boughs dusted with snow. The wind ripped and chewed through everything, and the water was a sheer drop-down. I crossed paths with no one. For a long time, I watched the approach and retreat of waves, their thick capes crashing apart against the rocks, that eternally restless motion having an inversely calming effect on me. The following day, I returned to the same spot, this time bringing with me the shoebox of my mother's photographs. I sat on the ground and opened the box and began to go through the pictures one by one, as if they were pieces of mail that I was quickly scanning and would read later on. But there were too many pictures, and after a few, I, like my father, could no longer bear the sight of them. A slight lessening in the pressure of my fingertips and the ones I was holding would have blown away into that wild seat, scattering down to where my mother's ashes already resided, but I could not bear that either, and so I put them back in the box and began to break the hardened ground. I had only a stick and a sharpened rock to work with, and the hole was not impressive, but it was deep enough to conceal the box. I covered it with dirt and stones. The moon's first light was shining down when I was done, and I walked back, aided by that same beam of light, to my car. A few weeks before my college graduation, my father called to say that he was selling our house, that he and Chitra and the girls were moving to a more traditional one in a less isolated suburb of Boston. There were other Bengalis nearby and an Indian grocery in the town, things that were more important to Chitra than the proximity of the ocean and the modernist architecture had been for my mother. I would not be following my father to that new house. I had made plans to travel in South America after graduating. The events over Christmas had never been discussed, never acknowledged. Along with my father, Chitra, Rupa, and Pew watched my commencement sitting on folding chairs on the grass, clapping when it was my turn to walk to the dais, posting, posing beside me for photographs in my cap and gown. The girls were polite to me, respectful of the fact that it was my day, but it was as if we'd never met. I knew that they had never revealed anything to Chitra or to my father about the things I had said and done that night, that it would remain between the three of us, that in their silence they continued both to protect and to punish me. The memory of that night was now the only tie between us, eclipsing everything else. In their utterly polite way, they made that clear. They spoke only to each other, and though their accents had turned American, my stepsisters, the closest thing I would ever have to siblings, seemed more impenetrable to me now than when they had arrived. Everyone closer, my father directed from behind his new camera, and Rupa and Pew held their shoulders tensely as I draped my arm around each. We are both moving forward, Kashik my father told me after the ceremony, new roads to explore. And without our having to say it, I knew we were both thankful to Chitra for chafing under whatever lingered of my mother's spirit in the place she had last called home and for forcing us to shut its doors.
Well, that one was a bit heavier, but a good one nonetheless. I hope you enjoyed it, Mom. Until next time. Thank you for joining me for this episode of What Are We Reading Now? This podcast was produced using the Anchor Publishing app and was recorded in my car, the best studio on wheels.